Hello, everyone. Uh, in case you don't know, I'm, I'm Garrett. Uh, I'm the, the student pastor, children's pastor. I'm still figuring out the name. Um, normally work with the kids and with the teens. Um, I guess we're missing a lot of college students today. A lot of families gone for Thanksgiving early, but glad the youth group's still here because we're doing something ambitious today. Um, we're doing an overview of the Book of Romans. Um, not just because that's difficult, but because uh, the youth group is going to go through a series on Romans next year. So we're giving them a little bit of a head start. Um, this is going to be this is going to be super condensed. Like this is like people talk about like the fifty thousand foot view. We're going like hundred thousand feet, and we're just going to like we're going to fly over this book. I I only have three points. It's three words. It's wrath, righteousness, and aroma. And hopefully that just helps us like build a framework to think about Romans. And so my goal is not to be like thorough. Um, that's my goal with the youth group series. So hopefully you'll be able, like all the questions that pop up, that will pop up and I won't answer them today, you, you ideally would be able to go to the teens next year and they can give you the answer. And hopefully it's not just like head knowledge, but they're living it out. Um, so uh, that's the purpose today. Um, don't get frustrated that this is super condensed. Um, you can just pray for us. You're like, wow, the teen's got a lot to go through. And, and then pray for us. Um, here's, let's start with the first one. Let's start with wrath. Um, Paul starts with this as a backdrop. It's a backdrop that's really dark. And depending on where you grew up, maybe you grew up as a, like a backwoods Baptist, and maybe you heard about wrath a lot. <laughs> or Maybe you haven't, but Paul, he, he doesn't undermine, like he, he goes straight forward with wrath and he puts it as the backdrop here, and the, the dark backdrop is that all of us are unrighteous, and so God actually has a righteous wrath that's being revealed against all who have fallen short. So whether you think uh, you of all people are in good standing, or that you really don't need to be concerned with your standing before God, Paul addresses both audiences, and he says that we all need to be saved from the wrath of God that's being revealed against all mankind. And the, the emphasis is on all mankind. Um, so there's a little bit of a pattern that he starts off with. God revealed himself. We suppressed him and exchanged him for our own glory. And then so God gave us over to ourselves. That's kind of the pattern that you see in Romans 1 and 2. A lot of, um, they didn't acknowledge him, so God gave them over, and then they did this, so God gave them over, and this, it's this downhill spiral, but it starts with God revealing himself, creating everything for his glory, and what did we do in response to that? We suppressed that thought, because we didn't like that thought. That pattern you can pick up in other places in the Bible, so if you go to 2 Thessalonians, if you read that passage there, it says that there's the, the coming of the Antichrist, and there's going to be a widespread deception. But, it, but why the deception? It says because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. So you start with a deception because of what they loved, and now it leads to further delusion. It says, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. The people who did not believe the truth, but what's the contrast? But had pleasure in unrighteousness. So they bought into lies because they hated truth. They did not believe God because they had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is the picture of 
suppression that we carry into Romans. It's the same pattern of suppression and then exchanging. So you go back to Romans and you can pick up this same pattern there. And that's really small font, but you can at least see the bold that we uh, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Therefore, God gave them up. And then they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And for this reason, God gave them up. They exchanged natural relations for those contrary to nature. God gave them up. So you see this pattern here, and it's really important when we're talking about wrath, because this is why there's wrath. You look around and you see that things aren't ideal. You see that things are actually in a really poor condition, like the world is corrupt, because there's wrath already being revealed. And the thing that we need to clarify is that we're not sinful because everything's in a poor condition. Things are in a poor condition because we're sinful. We exchanged, and then God gave over. So we don't just think about the, the seriousness of sin. Um, you, I mean, you can use whatever standard. Uh, what's society's standard for the seriousness of wrongdoing? And it can be things that just like impede like societal growth or things that hurt your personal fulfillment. Like That's one thing to get up in arms about. It's the things that we fight about on social media. How dare that person on a motorcycle split lanes? Or did you see that video of a parent parenting their child in that way and we see something that doesn't align with our standard and we get like really up in arms about it but Paul is laying a backdrop here the framework is the thing that is serious like the ultimate injustice the most heinous crime in the universe is that we suppressed God that we gave up his glory and exchanged it for ourselves. that's the ultimate injustice And it's because of this exchange that the world's facing wrath. A wrath that Paul says is not just in the future, like there is a total wrath coming, but it's currently already being revealed. Let me figure out how to use my notes here. I I like manuscripted this whole thing because there's a lot of like juicy rabbit trails that we just can't go down because we have to stick to the core here to give that framework um, but we could, we could probably spend a good time just pausing here to remember what Paul's doing. He's saying that all mankind is unrighteous, and he's maybe sensing that as we go through this and we talk about wrath, that his readers or us are sitting there listening comfortably. Because, like, we partly agree. We know that, yeah, there is unrighteousness in the world when you look at those people. And now Paul, sensing that, is going to turn the lens on, um, I'm going to say us, like the, the like put together religious people. He points it at the Jews, the ones who had all of these benefits of having the law, of being God's chosen people. He turns us the lenses on them who presume that they are not like those people. So it's not just atheists or agnostics that uh, put their fist up at God and turn their focus away from him. He says there's actually another side. There's the religious people who wrongly focus on themselves as they bank on and presume on God's kindness. And so this is where, in start of chapter 2, it says, Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice these things, and yet do them yourself? Maybe not the exact same thing, but characteristically, yes. 
that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent heart, I mean, this is the religious people he's talking to, because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Uh, So what you have there is people who are saying, well, I know there's wrath being revealed on the world, but that's because the rest of the world caused that. I'm still in God's good graces. And he's saying, be careful to presume on God's kindness. You might find out when the total wrath is revealed that you haven't been in his good graces all along. So what does it mean that we presume on God's kindness? It means simply that we wrongly assume that because God is love, that we're not in danger of his wrath. You know, I already said it, but whether you think God holds no wrath towards mankind or whether he does, but it surely wouldn't be against you, Paul's asking both groups to really take this to heart and to consider some heavy truths here. It's the, it's the supposed law keepers. It's the teachers of the blind. It's the instructors of the children, as he describes, that he's asking not to presume on God's kindness. And so a teacher of children is one of the ones he mentions. And, you know, here I am as a children's pastor. You know, like, that's me. And what he's saying is that I can look at those kind of things, the things like, oh, I work for a nonprofit or I work with children, those things that kind of give us that extra pat on the back. I can look at all of those things and conclude I'm in that tier of humanity that is good. I am not those other people that God's talking about. And yet, as I draw those conclusions about myself, there's something that's drastically missing from the picture. And I can conclude wrongly that I'm not part of the unrighteous that he's talking about, that I haven't fallen short. And so there's just like so many different angles that you can look at it. It could be from the perspective of a a judge. Like a, a judge is so preoccupied with diagnosing the wrongs of others that they fail to take the time to look at the wrongs in their own life. Or... They do see the wrongs in their life, but because they're so used to seeing all of the worst people brought to court and diagnosing the guilty, that they see such a huge imbalance, and they'd say, sure, I'm not perfect, but do you see the difference between us? If God doesn't really hold wrath towards all mankind, then I would definitely be in the tier that's risen above wrath and would be in his good graces. But Paul charges, and he uses that word, he charges that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So even those who have the law, the law would be something that they'd say is an extra plus on their account. Even those who have the law should know that the law attests that every mouth would be stopped in the whole world. The whole world would be held accountable to God. Um, so what I'm trying to do is trying to, when we consider the gospel, you, you really should consider both God's kindness and God's wrath, because something's actually missing um, when you don't consider both. And I, I, want us to, I want us to see how they actually really fit together, and we actually might really be lacking in our Christian love and our Christian kindness if we don't actually have a, a, a heavy, and this is a, like a heavy view of the reality of wrath. When you don't see wrath, and you only see God's kindness, what are you missing? What's lacking? And one of the things that he points out in this passage is that one of the things you lose when God's all kindness and no wrath is there's no repentance. 
there's no need for repentance. And when you only see um, his kindness, and you don't see the depth and the reality of wrath, you actually see a shallow kindness. Not a kindness and a patience and a forbearance that is indifferent to sin, and that's why it's easy to forgive. That's why it's easy to be patient, because sin isn't that big of a deal. Uh, I wonder how many like parts of our Christian life are, you know, we know we should be forgiving people, but the key to forgiveness is not indifference about sin. That's actually where we gain the depth and the glory of forgiveness, because sin is actually really serious, and to reflect the true patience, the true forbearance, the true forgiveness that God shows to us, is to actually understand that it deserves wrath. Like, it is messed up. It should actually get you irritated, because it's seriously wrong, and that's why forgiveness shines. That's why his kindness shines. So if we're stuck on one side of the spectrum and we're like frustrated with how things are, maybe it's because we haven't seen God's patience is actually the reason why we haven't tasted more wrath. He's being patient and kind with us so that we would not taste more wrath, but so that we would taste his kindness. Um, A kindness which would then, by the way, have uh, just like an indescribable flavor of mercy. Because you know what you deserved, but you still got grace. So consider both his wrath and his kindness. Um, One pastor said, God's always speaking both languages to us. It's not just kindness, and it's not just wrath. It's both. And that's what amplifies it. Um, He says, warn with wrath. Don't just woo with kindness. Um, That's definitely what Paul does. Paul doesn't undermine it. He like comes right out the gate, puts it straight forward as a reason why he's eager to share the gospel because it's the power to save men from that wrath. And I'm not trying to be rude here, but like we're a really put together church, so we we might need to understand that where Paul is driving the nail deepest is on the people who feel put together, and and that should kind of maybe send send shivers down your spine, not in. Uh, Let me just explain it this way. It's the people who looked around at their heritage, their rule-keeping, their religious activity. Like, we do a lot of chair setup. Like, everyone's, like, super involved in this church. And you can look around at those things and say, I'm really active, and wrongly conclude, and that's where the shivers come in, wrongly conclude that I'm safe. And even if we rightly conclude, by the grace of God, faith in Christ, I am safe, do we like tremble like in thanksgiving for the pure grace that's been given to us? For by grace you have been saved um, through faith and not of works lest you boast in yourself. It's a, it's a gift from God. It just increases the preciousness of that gift that you didn't earn and it was given to you in a desperate condition. When we see how desperate our condition was, we don't sing lightly and softly that we've been rescued. Struggling to figure out my notes here. You can maybe put it this way. Uh, Christians aren't simply like happy-go-lucky people. Um, You can be a Christian and a happy-go-lucky person, but it is mixed with an understanding that there's a reality of wrath. And we know that humanity's situation isn't bright. Like, it actually is dark. There are things to fear. And when you're about to face disaster... um, 
you don't just go with the most convenient solution in front of you. Like a hurricane's coming to your house, you don't just check to make sure the door's locked. Um, this is kind of like the feeling we should have when we read Romans 1 and 2. You, you don't just lock the door, like you scavenge, you triple check, make sure everything's locked up, everything's secure, so when the hurricane comes, the house doesn't cave in. And so Paul's looking at the seriousness of that impending wrath, and yet says that he has a gospel that's a sure salvation. It can be the end to your scavenging and triple checking. He proclaims that there's a good news that will not disappoint in the end. And so that's the reason why it says he shares it without hesitation. He uses the word he's not ashamed. So he's not timid um, because the gospel has the power of God unto salvation. It won't fail you. You won't find when the hurricane gets there that it was lacking, that you weren't prepared. But maybe we think um, little about the power of the gospel because we don't think there's much to be saved from. And yet, there is much to fear, but this gospel won't disappoint. The world's not just um, suffering because of wrath. It's awaiting a final wrath that will make all other suffering look light. It'll either look light in comparison as we face full and total wrath, or it'll look light as we embrace the gospel and see God work all those things together for our good, for his glory. Um, so we're not, talking about, uh, we're not talking about small things here. And we're supposedly holding the cure. <laughs> and if we don't see that something around us is wrong, or if we can't move past, like, does this really work, then we won't be bold like Paul in saying that this saves. A little summary here, transition. This is going to be a really condensed couple sentences, but you want to let God's, unrighteous, God's wrath on unrighteousness drive you either in desperation or thanksgiving for the righteousness that God has provided through the gospel. And it's not just his wrath that's being revealed to mankind. There's now even something greater being revealed, and that's, that's that there's a righteousness being revealed through the gospel. If unrighteousness is the problem, righteousness is the solution. And he's saying, and here's a really hefty phrase, man exchanged God's glory for his own, so God gave man over to more unrighteousness. But now here's the contrast. God gave himself over for us as unrighteous so that we can become righteous. And this is where we pivot to the next word, righteousness. What is, what is righteousness? Have you ever tried to, like, to define it? It's not super easy, but you can use simple terms like rightness. Or you could think about it as accuracy. It's uh, the closeness which we come to living out what's good, right, and true. Um, and accuracy, uh, you could say, an accord uh, in doing what lines up with the picture of God, who is what is right. And we need to keep in mind that that rightness isn't just external actions. If we want to line up with what God is like, it's not just doing things there's also an internal reason. So external actions and internal reasons. And that's kind of where we can get off. A children's pastor, I start focusing on external reasons and, uh, or external actions and forget internal reasons. I start doing it for myself. And that's, that's the injustice, that I would do good things for myself rather than what those good things were created for, which was for his glory. Um, so 
if you've read Romans at all, you know that um, there's a ton of rabbit trails. <laughs> there's a lot of, well, if this is true, then ask this question. And if that's true in response to that question, then here's another question you should be thinking about. So just like a ton of nuances. Um, and that's not to say that like the gospel isn't like simple for a child to understand. Like we, we go up to the children's room and we teach them the gospel and hopefully what's an understandable way. So why all the nuances in Romans? And the, the context is that um, there's a lot going on between Jew and Gentile. Gentiles are accepting and being saved by this gospel. And the Jews are like, but we're the ones who have the law. What, what was the goodness and purpose of us having the law if now there's a righteousness that comes apart from the law? And so now there's this jealousy. Uh, the Jews are like, why are the Gentiles sharing in all of these blessings when we were the ones who were given all of these privileges? And so there's just a ton in terms of like God's sovereignty, like relationship between Jews and Gentiles um, that we're just not going to even touch. So, um, but even though we aren't those Jews and Gentiles that he's writing to, we share the same um, flesh. We share the same inclinations of the heart that as you see the reasons why they uh, refused or abused receiving the gospel, you might find that you actually line up with some of those. And so I, I have four that are for us, and it's um, based on two sides of the spectrum. You can either be so preoccupied or emphasize our righteousness that you undermine our need for Christ's righteousness. But there is another uh, side of the road that you can fall off on, and you can overemphasize Christ's righteousness to the point where you actually undermine the real righteousness that God wants in your life. And so we, we have to answer hard questions with like, how is God both pleased to give us a righteousness that's not our own, but also pleased to actually transform you into someone who is, has a real righteousness? Both are true. And if we go too heavy on one or the other, we, we actually miss out and neglect what's on the other side. So here's, here's two under um, how we can overemphasize our own righteousness. You can say that, um, let me fix my notes so I don't keep running into this issue. An overemphasis on our righteousness can diminish our need for Christ and righteousness. Number one, we can uh, say that we deserve the gospel or two, that we don't need the gospel. And we'll just kind of hit on one aspect of this. It's in chapter 10. Um, and if you had scanned the notes, you'll see it a ton there that I'm not going to mention, but might be helpful in understanding this. Um, at the beginning of chapter 10, Paul explains his heart for the Jewish people, uh, that they're stumbling over the message of Christ uh, because they don't see why they need a righteousness from him when they already have the law. Um, and so Paul summarizes the way they feel in uh, verse 5 of chapter 10, how Moses writes about a righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So this is what the Jews believed. They keep and uphold the law. It's a righteousness based on the law. And yet Paul is here saying that he's praying for them that they'd be saved by a righteousness that comes apart from the law. You see why there's like an issue here? Like there's a, there's a confusion and a tension. You can, we'll skip over this, but he quotes an Old Testament passage from Deuteronomy and he writes it out in Romans 10. And so this is where you get a passage, um, well, the word is actually very near to you. Um, he's quoting Deuteronomy. 
Um, and it might be a really helpful study to go and compare those, um, which are mentioned in the notes, and just see how Paul is showing how uh, Christ is actually fulfilling that picture that was written in Deuteronomy. But you can see him uh, concisely bring up the issue in chapter 9, verse 30. He says, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that's by faith. But Israel, the ones who had the law, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. How can that be true? How come the Gentiles are uh, recipients of this blessing and the Jews who have the law are not? It's because, it says in verse 32, they did not pursue it by faith, but as if the righteousness that was revealed through the law could be obtained by work. So this is why Christ isn't contradicting the law. The reason the Jews are stumbling over the righteousness that comes from Christ is because they have already stumbled over the righteousness that comes is revealed through the law. So if you misconstrue the law, then you're going to misunderstand Christ. The as if in verse 32 is like is the most important pivotal phrase right there. Uh, they pursued it as if they could obtain it in their own works. And that's why you know, the quote here, they're ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They use the law as if by their works they could become righteous. And we can do the exact same thing. Whatever standard that we subscribe to, we can pursue that as if me doing those things is going to line me up and justify me with God. That by these actions, by human exertion, um, I'm most like God because of these standards that I keep. Um, but the righteousness that the law reveals was supposed to be by faith. So Christ isn't proclaiming a new way that the Jews were accusing him of. It's actually the same way. It's by faith. And this is, um, this is actually really important because this is where we find out that it's not so much uh, knowledge. It's actually deeper than that. It's pride that keeps us from embracing the gospel. Uh, because to embrace the gospel you can't say that you earned it. You can't point to anything that you've established or that you subscribe to and leverage that before God. Look at what I did. Put me in that tier of good graces. He's going to say you still fall short because look at, at me. You don't compare to me. The message of Christ will be a stumbling block because deep down we don't see that we desperately and completely need of righteousness that's not our own. So another pastor out of New York says, this is why middle-class Americans have such a hard time embracing the gospel, because we're so bent on earning, on putting together something by our own grit that we can look at and pat ourselves on the back. But it's impossible to receive the gospel as a gift when you think and feel and live that way. It has to be received by a gift. Like, there's no other option. If it's a wage. If it's something that you think you have merit or deserve, uh, then you actually don't receive it. Um, some great verses that you could look at in the notes, but I'm just going to, I'm going to fly over. I'm going to skip to the next half of the spectrum that we can actually, and this is, this is the one I think that we might be most prone to misunderstand because we totally, like, I assume we totally get it. Like, we need a righteousness that's not our own. But then have we fallen off on the other side of the road and said that this salvation was just simply fire protection, that I'm going to have a righteousness imparted to me, and now because I'm justified, my life is actually really kind of irrelevant. 
Um, and you get into questions in Romans I'm sure you're familiar with. If grace abounds, if sin abounds where grace abounds, then why don't I just sin so grace abounds all the more? This, this is that kind of line of thinking on the other side. If I have a righteousness that's not my own and that's how God gets glory, then let me just be even more unrighteous and then God's righteousness will be exalted even higher. And that's because we've fallen on the other side of the road. So an overemphasis on Christ's righteousness can diminish the goal of our righteousness. And here's the next two points under that. You could say that uh, I've done the gospel, like I finished it, like I accepted forgiveness and now the work of Christ is pretty much accomplished in my life. Um, Or we divide the gospel and you just pull out sanctification from salvation. You'll say, I'm saved, past tense. Um, And then forget that actually that salvation is sanctifying you. So here's the other end. And I think the bookends of Romans helps us to actually picture, what, like a full picture of what the gospel is doing. Not just saving us from wrath, um, but actually creating us into a righteous people. Um, Because I I hope you agree that the gospel isn't just proclaiming a righteousness that's not your own. Like, it's producing a church that actually is righteous. So it's not just fire protection. Um, And if you've heard a lot of wrath growing up, you might have heard it in those terms. That this 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 is your way out of hell. This is your fire protection. So accept the gospel and be saved. And then it's like the revival finished. And, that, and that's the extent of the work. And so you have a revival every other week, just calling more people to embrace, get this insurance, get that fire protection, and then we're good. Uh, Paul would have some things to say about that. He has imputed a righteousness to us. Uh, that's a fancy word. But it's, it's through that that we actually gain the power to live righteously. So unless God imputes his righteousness to you, you'll never feel the power to actually live righteously in a way that points all to him and not to us. So I hope you'd agree. God's not desiring for a church that's technically counted righteous by faith, but is characteristically unrighteous in our works. God's actually concerned about that. Uh, so lots of, lots of chapters address this in Romans. It talks about an old master and a new master, and you're either serving one or the other, one that leads to sin and death and one that leads to your righteousness and life. And it says that those who belong to Jesus Christ are the ones who live by faith, um, who have put to death the deeds of the body. So the flesh is at work when temptation pops up, it leads to sin, which then results in death. But how do people who by faith operate? Well, when that temptation pops up, they have the confidence to say that Christ has already done what needs to be done for me to say, that doesn't have to live. I don't have to give in to that. And I don't know, I don't know if you've thought about it this way, but like, temptation is actually strongest when you think fighting back's pointless. Either you can't say no, or there's no point in saying no. Um, because I'm justified. Whether I say yes, whether I say no, I'm in his good graces. But those who live by faith don't think that way. They don't operate that way. So he gives a lot of identifying statements that if you really have this faith, this is how you operate. When it pops up, when the flesh tells you you can't, the faith says, I'm free. That those deadly desires don't have to live. They don't have to kill me. Um, Jesus died to kill those passions, and now he's given you the strength to, in his strength, 
put to death those desires. So this is why it's not out of place um, for us to be really concerned about your righteousness, how you live. That fits what the gospel's doing in the world. It's not asking you to earn your standing before God, but to live out that standing that Christ has earned for you. Let me just skip over some paragraphs here. Um, let's go back to that word imputation. Uh, uh, so this is the point. Don't uh, take a, like a theological word like imputation and Christ's righteousness imputed to me and let that cause you to think uh, the glorious work of the gospel is done in my life. Uh, forgiveness is just the start. He died so that you might live with him. So put to death the things that he's killed and live in the life that you say that you have. So it's a contradiction to say, I'm being saved, but I'm not being sanctified. Because the faith that saves you is the faith that's sanctifying you. And this is what James, yeah, James flushes out in his letter. That faith without works is dead. He says, don't wait to be shown, O man, at the last day. We're talking about final wrath. Don't wait to be shown at that final judgment day. Uh, That faith without works is dead. You don't want to find out then that the faith that fully and completely receives Christ's righteousness is a faith that will, in your life, cause you to have an accord. Like your life will accord with that righteousness that you have accepted. Um, so let's, let's go to one uh, final point here, aroma. This aroma is, you can actually kind of view this as a subpoint of three and four, that we did the gospel or we divide the gospel. Because what the gospel is doing is it's actually creating an aroma that's coming from your life. Paul explains, one more picture. Uh, Let this be our transitional thought. Uh, The gospel doesn't just take away God's frown on your life and leave him with a neutral face. The gospel is actually doing something so now that it's at work in your life, creating a righteousness that makes him smile. The righteousness is creating an aroma which makes him smile. And so, You go to the bookends of Romans, like I had mentioned. Let me just um, pull both of these up so you can see the the parallel here. Whenever there's bookends, you really get, this is framework we're talking about. This is how you see what the rest of the book is going on. Um, So at chapter 1, and then in chapter 15, you can read these verses, um, or I'll just read them, um, that Jesus is, there we go, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Does that sound a little bit um, pharisaical? Like the gospel is helping us obey. (laughs) The gospel is about your obedience. The gospel is supposed to be creating in you righteousness. That sounds very pharisaical, but this is a reality to what the gospel is doing in our life. It's bringing about the obedience of faith. Not an obedience of works so we point to ourselves, but a faith. A faith in what Christ has done that now empowers us to live in light of it. And so he just mentions it again there at the end to bring about the obedience of uh, faith. Well, where does aroma come from? Um, The gospel is actually doing something that nothing else can do. It's strengthening you, like it says in verse 26, to him who's able to strengthen you according to the gospel. What's it strengthening you to do? It's strengthening you to obey by faith. Uh, You can't, without the power of the gospel, obey in a way that actually pleases God. 
this makes more sense when we see Paul um, describe his role in priestly terms. So let's just go to a few more. Uh, let me read this. The grace of God has been given to me, Paul, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. And this is what's really weird. He's talking about him as a missionary, but here's how he describes it. In the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Did Paul really just explain his missionary role in terms of being a priest? Does that feel out of place? Well, here's the connection. What he's doing is um, um, evoking Old Testament imagery of sacrifices, like Jeff was mentioning in his prayer, where there would be continual offerings, not just of animals, but food and drink offerings that would be offered to God and create, and this is the phrase that's repeated so often in the Old Testament, a pleasing aroma to God, that those offerings would be continually sent and sacrificed and would create an aroma that rises up to God and makes him smile. Um, So Paul's doing actually something really significant when he's uh, drawing a connection between this, between his priestly work. Um, He's connecting images like in Exodus uh, 26 um, and Hebrews 13. Let me read those. We're we're getting to the end here. So Exodus 29 says that there's a pleasing aroma. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of the meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. Um, just two key words from there. It's like it's a pleasing aroma, and it's just a regular burnt offering. And now he draws on that in Hebrews 13, and he says, Now through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. So rather than animals being offered continually in the temple, our lives are being offered as a continual sacrifice to God. And that aroma, which rises up to God, is now something that Paul says, by the power of the gospel, can be rising up from your life or rising up to the people that you're reaching with the gospel when it's at work in their life. So Paul views the gospel as the only thing power enough to transform people into a pleasing sacrifice to God. Um, That's what energized Paul, and he knows that apart from the gospel, there's, there's no sweet aroma from our life. No matter how good it might look in the external actions, it's, it's actually uh, a stench. But we can emit that sweet smell. I mean, is that not the most motivating thing in the universe? Like, this is what, we say we're all about God's glory. I mean, what, what we're really saying by that is that we're about his smile. And what you do with your life can actually emit an aroma, this is the picture, at least, that rises up to him and makes him smile. This is why your life matters. You say you're all about God's glory. You just want God to be glorified in everything you do. You want him to smile on your life. This is how he smiles. When his gospel not just imparts to you a righteousness that's not your own, but when it creates in you a righteousness that's lived out by faith. This is what the gospel is doing. So um, this is is how I think of how God's glory is actually like the end of everything that we do. what I would do would result in aroma that rises up to him and makes him smile. You could think of it, and this is how I talk to the teens about it. It's, it's like the ultimate so that. Like, we have a lot of so that's that look similar when you go lower. Like, I do that so I can earn my paycheck. I, you know, I, I do that so I can be in better shape. And we all share those so that's. But there's a higher so that for the Christian. It's not just so that 
I can better myself. You keep asking that so that question, and when you run out of answers, it should be because you finalized it, it climaxed on the end, the ultimate so that. There's no why after that. I do this why so that God would smile, so that God would be glorified. Um, you know, I, I mentioned teaching children. Let me just bring this up one more time. I, like, I love children, but most people do. It's nothing uniquely Christian to um, enjoy and serve in like a children's ministry or unique about like working in a nonprofit or being a kind person. Like we all share similar like so that's. But when, and this goes back to the beginning, but when we suppress that God created them so that he would be glorified, that's what twists and actually makes my reasons fall short of why I would serve children. It all falls short when the last so that is your little peak, that I would be the peak of why I do this. Um, and I just, I really wish there was time to just draw, like, just, there's a huge, like, vastness between our peak that we live for and God's peak. There is a deeper joy, there's a greater purpose, and it's just like, People get so irritated when you say, well, you should do some things for yourself. And it's like, yeah, in some ways, but that's my smaller so that. I have a much greater so that that I live for. So a Christian so that goes higher. Man, just skipping so many paragraphs here. Here's the connection we were trying to make. Um, That it's not at odds for God to be both pleased and giving us a righteousness that's not our own and also pleased to actually create in you a real righteousness. Um, we just have a new orientation. Like once, once you get a glimpse that God is smiling on your life, you now have a power to live in light of that smile. Uh, a works of righteousness that's not because of your own exertion, but that's actually in response to God's grace. So that, like we saying, when the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I but through Christ in me. So don't forget this connection. Um, you just can't make God smile in your own striving. Um, it's only by, this is, this is a hard thing to think about, uh, resting while you work. It's only when you rest in the work of Christ that you can strive in a way that's restful, that you can strive in a way that all points to God um, because no other way can just rid us of the compulsion that by our works we're earning something. So last two things here. Let's just, we have a picture of an aroma, and I just want you to think of it individually and collectively. This is where Paul goes in Romans 12. By the mercy of God, present your life a living sacrifice. And then when he's talking about his missionary uh, endeavors, he's trying to present collectively people by the power of the gospel to be a pleasing aroma to God. So this is like the twofold response. You want to live out the gospel in your life, to work and to strive, to be righteous in a way, uh, to strive for righteousness righteously. And you can only do that when you're living out by faith rather than I'm earning something here. I'm leveraging something before God. And I I just, this is where the power is. When you go about your day and you realize that there actually, there is implications for how you live. I can make God smile Is that motivation for you? Yeah. 
And then we're driven by that smile to go to the nation so that every tribe and tongue um, would be transformed by the gospel. And we can, like, f- from a, like, really distant view, just see the world and picture that aroma rising up to God. That's what the gospel is doing in the world. It's creating righteous people. And it might not be in the places you think. You go to Utah and you see Mormon temples. You're like, that's really beautiful. There must be a really good smell coming up from there to God. But not unless it's transformed by the power of the gospel. There can be really pretty places and temples that are actually emitting a stench. And that should cause us to be burdened to go to them and share with them, this is what actually makes God smile. This is where his glory is. This frees us from our own peak of using religion to build ourselves up in some way. But for us to actually work hard, to strive hard, like the pastors here are laboring hard for the congregation, but they're laboring in a way because they know that Christ has already finished the work and we now strive in light of that. That's how you work by faith and not by exerting your own will. Well, youth group, uh, we've got a lot to go through. Um, and, I, and I hope, in a sense, that you're kind of like frustrated, like that was, like way, that was way too condensed. And so I hope that just makes you feel sorry for our youth group and you pray for them. <laughs> so let, let's actually just close in prayer. Father, thank you uh, that your word has uh, truth, that there's realities that we can... Uh, know about um, how sad it would be if all of these things were going on and you didn't reveal your word to us and we couldn't actually know that there's not just a wrath being revealed but there's a righteousness being revealed through the gospel and I pray that you would just help us see the the preciousness of that gospel that we have we'd see the the preciousness and the glory of living in a way that makes you smile and that that smile uh, would drive everything that we do we'd be free to leave to live for a peak of glory that's just so much higher than living for our own peak of glory. Um, So we pray that your gospel would be at work in our church, uh, that not just part of our life, but all of our life would be thrown on that altar to be a pleasing sacrifice to you, and uh, that we would play a part in all the nations receiving that gospel, and so the world um, can be emitting that sweet smell that makes you smile. We just pray this in Christ's name. Amen.